If schools can educate students in exchange for their tuition, why can't businesses educate students in exchange for their labor? No reason, just anti-market bigotry. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. That is a quote from today's book. It is titled Labor Econ Versus the World. You will have an image of it on my screen. I know it's a little blurry at this moment, but the author is Dr. Brian Kaplan of George Mason University. Dr. Kaplan, where is the best place to purchase this excellent book? Amazon.com is the best and only place. Links will be in the description below. Dr. Kaplan, what is labor econ and why is it important? Labor economics is just the application of economics to the world of labor. So jobs, obviously, but also everything that people do to get ready for their jobs, education, job training, everything that impinges upon labor economics actually winds up getting counted there. So economics of the family, uh, non-marital births, divorce, all of this plays into whether or not people want to get a job. So all of that winds up coming out of the heading of labor economics as well. Uh, for this, we have the great economist Gary Becker to thank. He's the one who took a formerly narrowly defined field and turned it into this vast expanse that we now have. One of the, If I had to summarize the general objection to this book, it might go something like this. Workers have less bargaining power than employers. Thus, the first rule of labor economics is to recognize the necessity of worker safety regulations, mandatory benefits, and minimum payments for hourly work. What's wrong with that worldview, if anything? First thing to remember is, well, what does it even mean to say that someone has less bargaining power? Mm -hmm. now, when you're really thinking about it, how is it different from there just not being much demand for your services? You say, well, Tom Cruise has tons of bargaining power. Well, because people really want Tom Cruise. Janitor doesn't have very much. Yeah, because the janitor seems very replaceable. But when you put it that way, then you realize, hmm, how exactly is this regulation supposed to help someone? Just because there's not a lot of demand for my services, how does this help me when there's a bunch of laws saying I have to be treated well? When people always have the option of saying, I don't need to trade with you at all, actually. This is really the fundamental issue of labor regulation. People see someone not doing as well as they want. They think if we just pass a law, then we can solve the problem. But there's always the option of just saying, I don't need that person. I can do without that person. And what we see in the real world is this totally standard. This is not an ideological point. Everybody in real life thinks about the cost of labor when they consider hiring. Everybody hires somebody at some point if only to go and give them a ride or mow their grass or whatever, right, to come and fix their plumbing. And the idea that there's something ideological or philosophical about the view that the amount that people want depends upon how much labor is charging, it's just crazy. It's absolute common sense. It's ideology to say otherwise. When it comes to uh, regulation, is, the is government intervention the only method of sort of uh, regulating and making sure uh, consumers and workers are, are treated well? Or is there any uh, m method in the free market that people can use to sort of achieve this end of getting uh, well-treated workers and reliable products and services? Right. The ultimate check upon all behavior markets is if you don't like it, don't shop there or don't sell your labor there. This is the main thing that workers have going for them in a free market is I don't have to work here. 
Now, this does not mean that it is well advised for workers to go up to the boss with a list of demands and say, do all this or else I quit. Boss is likely to say, yeah, well, I guess we could do without you. Uh, rather, it's realizing that if you're not satisfied, then you should look around for something better. You will find something sooner or later. And that's the time when suddenly you can say, hey, maybe I'll just go to this new thing that I like better. Or maybe I'll tell my boss I found something else if you want to keep me. Great. So yeah, that is the main thing. Of course, there's also just shopping around before you take a job. For professors, this is a very big deal because normally for a professor to take a job, they need to move to a totally new area. And once they start working in that job, it's actually an enormous burden to try to find any other kind of employment. Yet if we look at the lies of professors, they're actually really sweet. <laughs> professors have a ridiculously good deal. What's going on? What's going on is that before someone moves out to North Dakota, it is totally standard for them to go and talk to people already there and, and ask, how do you get treated here? And if the answer is poorly, then you just don't move in the first place. Which is, by the way, the same story behind the actual economic history of company towns. People think of company towns as you're just randomly dropped in the middle of nowhere and then you have no other easy options. But the thing is, is to get someone to move to your company town, you've got to make them think that it's a good deal. And the main way company towns historically made people think something was a good deal was by making it a good deal. When it comes to the example of sweatshops, this is where uh, regulatory advocates sort of have their best example of big company, very powerful, Nike, Apple, something in this area, versus people with very little bargaining power making very small amounts of money. What's wrong with governments sort of stepping in and saying, hey, you don't get to walk all over these people. They need to be treated with dignity. You're making enough money. You're still going to sell shoes. You're still going to make tons of profit, but you have to meet these minimum standards. Anything wrong with that? Yeah, tons wrong with it. I mean, here's the main thing to keep in mind. Just because someone has very low demand for their services doesn't mean that their customers can't drop them and say, we can do without you. In fact, if anything, you'd think that that's exactly when businesses would be most likely to say, you're not really that valuable anyway. I guess we could figure out some other way of doing this. And so the very fact that you have a big corporation dealing with low-skilled workers does not mean that regulation can put, improve their conditions without changing the willingness of business to hire. This is critical. Now, in terms of understanding the actual facts on the ground, the main thing to know about so-called sweatshops is that normally they pay a lot better than native competitors. They not only offer a better deal, partly is because they are trying to go and find better workers, but on top of that, they're also giving better job training than local firms usually are. They're going and introducing you to what is the cutting edge in the global marketplace. So they aren't just going and giving better compensation. They really are investing in the human capital of their workers. Probably one of the greatest misconceptions that people have about life in third world countries for workers is to think that most third world workers are employed by big multinational corporations. Nothing could be further from the truth. Formal employment in poor countries is often very rare. It's almost always way below the level that you would have in countries like the U.S. It is normal, actually, in the poorest countries for most people to be self-employed, to have no formal employment of any kind. And if you're wondering, well, what is that like? Have you ever been a tourist in a poor country and someone comes up to you and tries to sell hats to you on the beach? That's what life is like for most workers in the poorest countries, just sort of desperately trying to eke out an existence, running their own business, but not really knowing what to do. 
most people really are not cut out to run their own business. And in poor countries, we do see the sad spectacle of people who really don't know what's going on trying to run a business and generally doing quite poorly at it. In those countries, formal jobs of any kind are highly prized, but formal jobs with the multinationals are almost always the very best jobs in those countries. The regulation is a way of encouraging firms to not go there in the first place or to close up. Right. I mean, you know, again, like main thing to realize is still multinationals do almost all of their business, almost all of their employment in rich countries, not poor ones. And if you ever tried running a business in a poor country, if you ever thought about how hard it would be, it's hard because things are just so screwed up there. Actual multinationals usually prefer to work in rich countries. If there weren't much lower wages in poor countries, there'd be almost nothing to recommend doing it there. So even if I see business as this evil, profit-seeking, predatory, dog-eat-dog mechanism, uh, I should still support it because it even helps the people mm -hmm. who I'm claiming to speak on behalf of, even though I've never met uh, any of them and uh, see that they obviously choose the job. So, so you're saying there's still a reason to uh, support, uh, to oppose regulation if you support the poorest workers on the planet? Yeah, if you're really worried about the poorest workers on the planet, you should be trying to figure out how to get a lot more multinationals to open up in poor countries. You should be looking for ways to get barriers down. Really, you should be looking for governments that put multinationals at ease and say, we love you guys. We want as many of you here as possible. Normally, again, in the real world, you have domestic businesses that are trying to keep multinationals out so that they can continue running their businesses well below the normal level of efficiency. And also, as a result, paying their workers quite a bit less than they would be getting if they could work for multinationals. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the main thing to keep in mind is that the way that you make life better for people is by giving them more options, not less. When you regulate multinationals or keep them out, you are just taking options off the table. And it turns out, if you really go and compare what the options are, these are the best options. Multinationals are the best companies to work for, the best places to be employed in the poorest countries. So... Yes, you really should be you know, feeling like this is the best that's available, which it really is. What is the hedonic treadmill and how does it apply to labor economics? Great question. Hedonic treadmill is basic fact about human happiness that for most parts of your life, at first, they if they improve, First, you feel happy, but then you start to take it for granted, and eventually it's like it never happened. Same thing for many bad things that happen to you. At first, you say, oh, this is my, so, so terrible. My life is over. Then you get used to it, and it stops bothering you. I often talk to people about getting a granite countertop. People say, oh, it's so great. It's so lovely. But after a month, do you really sit there stroking the granite and saying, I love you, granite. Such great granite. Right? And the same goes for most luxury products and so on. Right. Uh, now, many people look at this and say, isn't this really a very anti-economics point? So it comes down to happiness is not nearly as dependent upon material well-being as most people believe. It looks like, well, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated because the hedonic adaptation varies a lot with the exact kind of good. There are some kinds of goods, again, like granite, where hedonic adaptation is very quick and very reliable. There's others where not so much. But anyway, uh, why this is relevant for labor economics, there are a lot of people who argue for regulation saying, look, all right, fine, it's true that labor market regulation does cause some unemployment. That's unfortunate. But 
it does raise the compensation for all the people that keep their jobs. So as long as there's not too many people losing their jobs, all the other people getting them, that's good for them. And on the, in the end, it winds up being worthwhile. And my response to that is no, because the thing that people are likely to get used to pretty quickly are the extra luxuries. And the other thing, what is hard for people to get used to, something that people do not hedonically adapt to well at all is idleness, unemployment. A lot of work saying that the sheer fact of being unemployed causes an enormous harm to human happiness. Even if you make up all the loss and earnings with unemployment, still you will see that people who are unemployed feel unhappy on average because they just feel useless. Their lives are meaningless. They aren't part of anything. One of the parts of human happiness that people adjust to the least is the social world. Right? Do you have other people around you that you like being with? When people are unemployed, it's very isolating. They just feel like there's no one around, you know, no companionship, no nothing that you're a part of. So what I say in the book is that actually if you are going to have a wiser view about human well-being, this is, does not mean that stricter labor market regulation is a good idea. Yeah, it, it does raise wages for the lucky ones with jobs. But the important thing to remember is those changes in earnings are pretty ephemeral. But on the other hand, the harm of unemployment is very durable. People can feel miserable about being employed for many years, whereas most luxury products, you really do get used to them pretty quickly. What is labor elasticity and why does it matter? Uh, well, so I think you mean labor demand elasticity. And labor demand elasticity is one of the most important technical concepts that bores almost everyone to tears. It comes down to this. Uh, the of labor demand at a point is the percentage change in the quantity of labor that we employed divided by the percentage change in the wage. All right. So if there is a very large change in the wage when there or excuse me, very large change in the amount that employers want to hire when there's a, when there's a small change in the wage, then you have very highly elastic labor demand elasticity. Right. And this is a circumstance where if you were graphing this, this would roughly mean, it like, depends upon the scale, but roughly mean that you've got very flat labor demand. Uh, in this scenario, you need to be very concerned that almost any regulation, any union activity could cause mass unemployment. On the other hand, you could also have a low labor demand elasticity, which means that when you raise wages a lot, there'll only be a very small change in the quantity of labor that people consume. Uh, I should say it's percentage. This is all in percentage terms. So percentage change in the quantity divided by percentage change in the price. Um, now, again, if this seems very technical, and again, I can imagine almost everyone hearing it is not going and taking out some paper and writing writing things down right now. <laughs> uh, right? And uh, as I said in one of the pieces that I wrote, I just went and searched all of Twitter, and there were like 100 uses per year on the entirety of Twitter. And yet... This is the variable that you really need to take a strong stand on if you are especially supportive of labor market regulation. You need to be very convinced that this number is, uh, that this number is actually small. Right? You need to believe this is a small number, that you could raise wages a lot, uh, you would have a large percentage change in wages, would not lead to any noticeable percentage change in the amount of labor that people want. Right? And again, if you're like, well, you're still falling asleep, say, so look, you can't fall asleep if you think regulation is a good idea. You got to have a very specific belief about this or else what you're doing is clearly harmful, even from your own point of view. I do have a piece where I track down estimates of what this is, right? And 
a pretty standard estimate is something like negative 0.25, which basically says that if you can push wages up by 4%, this will reduce the quantity of labor that people want to hire by about 1%. All right. And you're like, hmm, all right, is that a lot? Well, it basically means that if you've got, say, unemployment at 7%, that you could get rid of it if wages would just fall by 12%. Right. And if you remember that three percentage points of unemployment is really the difference between it being super hard to get a job and super easy. So it's the kind of thing where when you appreciate it, it's like, wow, all right, it's not that huge of a deal to have a world of full employment. Uh, right now, of course, we have such low levels of unemployment that doesn't seem relevant, but you know, sooner or later, and yeah, probably not, I mean, my guess is after the election, unemployment is going to be going way up. When it comes to discrimination, you had an observation regarding illegal immigrants. Ah, uh, yes. What is what is uh, important for us to understand about discrimination if we look at the case of illegal immigrants? Yeah, great question. All right. If you just think about all of the groups of workers in American society that people feel comfortable complaining about, so comfortable that you would just loudly talk about it standing in line at the grocery store without looking over your shoulder to make sure you're not offending somebody. Like almost no one is going to go and start complaining about Chinese workers or black workers or gay workers. And yet people will at the grocery store audibly go and say these goddamn illegal immigrants. Right now, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that there is a quite high level of negativity towards illegal immigrants. A lot of people do not feel good about them. They are unhappy with them on a pretty deep level. And yet, and yet, if you were to go and tell people, well, given how much people dislike illegal immigrants, we don't really need government to do anything about this because obviously employers are human beings. They won't like illegal immigrants either, and therefore they won't hire them. If you imagine making this argument and the derision that you would receive, you'll say, Psh, of course, employers will go and hire them. They're out. They're just trying to make money. Now, I actually agree with that. I say, hmm, well, if that's what you think, if you think that even a group of people that is widely despised will still have very little trouble getting jobs because employers are after money, then what does this say about all of the other kinds of discrimination that people worry about? What does this say about the actual necessity for having anti-discrimination laws? And I say it gives us a pretty clear answer, which is that discrimination laws are actually at most useless, at best useless, because they are stopping people from doing something that they don't really want to do, which is to go and hire less qualified people when they could hire a more qualified person. If, you know, most employers, it's not that they sit around saying, God, I love illegal immigrants, the salt of the earth. It's more like I can get a better worker for a lower wage if I go and hire an illegal immigrant. So though it kind of bothers me and leaves a bad taste in my mouth, I'll do it anyway. And we, we should expect that people would have a very similar attitude for any other group that people think is being discriminated against, except, of course, milder, because illegal immigrants being probably the most despised group are getting the, are getting the worst evil eye. And yet even that is not enough to prevent them from getting work. And on top of the evil eye, I think th there has to be legislation in Arizona because on the front of so many businesses, you'll see we enforce this standard. No, it, we don't hire illegals because this law says if we, yes. you know, hire them, it's uh, we get fined. Like there's, like there's been a federal regulation since I believe 1986 
that set, that actually imposes fines on employers for hiring illegal workers. And then there may be additional state level sanctions as well. Yeah, this goes back to basic idea of the economic discrimination, which is if you really want to have discrimination, it has to be government required. It's not enough for government to say you can discriminate if you feel like it. If you want discrimination, you need government to say you must discriminate whether you like it or not. That's obviously what's going on with illegal immigrants, where the government says you better, you better or you'll be harshly punished. You better put up these signs. There's going to be fines. There could be jail time. We're watching you. Like Big brother is watching you. Right. But again, if you think that that's the kind of thing necessary to ensure discrimination against illegal immigrants, then you'd think something similar would be necessary to get discrimination against women or blacks or gays. I mean, my own view is the real world right now is one where there is government enforced discrimination in favor of black, blacks, women and gays, right? such that, that employers are in fact nervous. If I hire people solely on their merits, I'll get in trouble because people will say that my work face, my workforce is not sufficiently diverse and get mad at me. And of course, not just mad. <laughs> the law will come down upon you. There was an interesting moment in the uh, debate between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan in 1980, where Carter says, what we need uh, to do is start enforcing the Equal Pay Act, because at this time, women get about 65 cents on the dollar for every dollar that a man makes. And then like mm -hmm. the next day, I heard Amy Schumer uh, at the Oscars saying they hired three women to host because it's still cheaper than one man. Now, realize the average person actually believes that this is true, that mm -hmm. literally a man and a woman work the same job, create the same value, same effort, and they pay the man a dollar and the woman gets between 60 and 80 cents mm -hmm. for every dollar. Uh, first of all, what is the intellectual response to that? Is that true or false? Second, how has this scam been pulled off for decades? <laughs> right. There's something really bizarre about this because if this is true, then every employer in the country should be able to make an enormous profit by firing all their males, replacing them with equally qualified women for lower pay and pocketing the difference. All right now, I suppose that's logically possible that it could occur, but it is a pretty amazing get rich quick scheme that any dummy could understand. This is not saying we have to go and take the logarithm of something in order to go and make more money. This is just saying, hey, fire all your men, replace them with, with women and you'll make tons of extra money. Right. That is what, what, the, what this claim is really saying. In terms of the data, what we actually see is that if you simply go and compare single childless men and women with the same level of skills, the same, same education level, they look the same on paper, that the earnings of the two groups is virtually the same. It has been for a long time. Right. And this is without even making a lot of other adjustments, such as well, women with college degrees aren't really the same as men with college degrees because men are a lot more likely to do STEM, where you learn real useful skills, and women are a lot less likely to do STEM and instead learn something that you don't ever need to know for any practical purpose. In terms of how the scam has been going on, well, there's the scam of paying women way less than they're worth, and I'll say uh, there's just not much sign that that scam has been going on. It more, looks more like what has happened is women were really low paid when women were really low skilled. And as women have increased their skills, their pay has gone up. If you think of the scam as making a lot of false accusations against employers for discriminating against women when they're not, well, that scam probably is preserved by the level of intimidation in our culture against someone that says what I'm saying. 
people are afraid to say this kind of stuff for fear of having their heads bitten off, obviously by women themselves, but also by male feminists and sympathizers and not just on the left. These are things that people say when they want to go and win votes from moderates. Anyone with a mom right, no, like, doesn't like hearing this kind of thing, right? Um, and yet the evidence is very strongly that it's true. In an ideal world, we just wouldn't have to bring it up. Everyone would take it for granted and no one would be mad about it. The problem is when people start flinging false accusations against the entire business world, really, what can you do other than say, look, this doesn't make me sound good, but I'm not mad about anything. But nevertheless, the story just does not check out. It doesn't check out in terms of common sense and it doesn't check out in terms of the numbers. I've had this conversation with one of my relatives and every time, no matter what I say, it, it's just an intellectual exercise for me at this point. Cause mm -hmm. she's never coming over, mm -hmm. but she, no matter what I say, she'll just be, I, I, I was reading Walter Block's explanation in 1963, I think in defending <laughs> the undefendable. I go, this is how far back the lie goes. Mm -hmm. And she'll just, she'll just listen and she won't interrupt me. And she goes, but how could they keep saying it if it wasn't true? So I, 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 I love your, uh, your explanation. I, yeah. It just, it seems like maybe I'm too sensitive. Yeah, and there's, a lot of of self, there's a lot of self-censorship too. Yeah. You don't need to actually get yelled at very often. People could actually be nice 90% mm. of the time. And yet the one chance in 10 that a person's going to bite your head off will leave, lead very psychologically normal people not to say stuff. It's like, well, if I say what's true and they don't mind, I don't really get anything. But if I say what's true and they do mind, then I get my head bitten off. So I'll just keep my mouth shut. Exactly. And am I too, um, am I looking into it too much to think that it's sort of vilifying um, men? I don't mean to throw this victim card, but if I were to say uh, these, uh, the thing about Asians is they earn, is whites earn, you know, 80 cents for every dollar an Asian earns. If mm -hmm. you look at the average income mm -hmm. and the average mm -hmm. Jew earns a dollar for everything to a, a uh, not a Western European earns. I mean, that is, uh, I would not want anyone saying that about any group. Isn't there a little vilification there? Hmm. Well, what I would say is it's mostly the town. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You know, look, you look, look, this is this is just the way that life works. You can say two sentences and uh, you, know, you say the same sentence uh, two different ways. In one way, no normal person would it would take anything amiss. And another one, people will be very upset. It's it's a tone is um, yeah, matters a great deal. Um, so, if, you know, if someone says Jews are earning a dollar fifty for every dollar a Gentile earns. <laughs> yeah. Just in the just in the pronunciation of the word Jews, right? that's one where people will flip out. And someone's going to give that, and, right, and rightly so. Yeah, don't excerpt me. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the other hand, if if you just say, you know, "Well, Jews earn a dollar fifty for every dollar Gentiles earn," you can say it in that way, and then I'd say, like, no sensible person would think that you had any negativity about it. They would just say, "Hmm, all right, that's interesting. Why is that?" Then you could talk about it and say, well, there's a lot of reasons what's going on. Um, you know, I'm only a messenger here and maybe I don't really know, but I'm not going to find out better because someone is breathing down my neck for saying something that offends the most hyper offendable person in the world. And that's what I like uh, so much about this book is it, it, it's not it, just uh, straightforward, great communication mechanisms. It, 
it's like you really value the reader's time, which I feel like I don't get that with a lot of authors. Straight to the point and then on to a new topic. And every little article, what are there, like 30 or 50 chapters in this thing? Yeah, it's like, yeah, about 50. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it, I learned something in every little chapter and my time is appreciated. I'm not going anywhere with that besides yeah. the fact that people should buy the book and thank you. Well, I got seven more books in this series coming out eventually. So <laughs> eventually I want a lot of your time, Keith, but <laughs> in any one sitting, <laughs> I don't need much. That's good. Well, one of my uh, favorite articles uh, is involves you discussing social desirability bias. Mm -hmm. Two quotes here. The key economic point, banning resorts saves no Mexican children from hunger. Banning resorts would rather cause Mexican children to be hungry by depriving their parents of the best jobs they can get, you go on to say. At this point, it's tempting to enthuse. Let's just have a dialogue about this. The demagogues have their view. Economists have theirs. Let's try to reach a consensus. To this, I at once say, dialogue? We don't need no stinking dialogue. Why would you not want to have dialogue with someone who just wants to consider the possibility of regulating resorts like this? Yeah, the problem with a dialogue is that some views are true, but they just sound really bad. And other views are false, but they sound really good. And when you have a dialogue between those views, the view that is wrong generally wins out. I've had you know, multiple debates where you just realize you know, there's really no winning this debate because the true position just sounds so awful. It would be a debate about, like, like, is person X too fat? And there's only one answer that sounds good, which is, no, of course not. They're great the way they are. It doesn't matter how the person is actually doing. There's still this problem of, hmm, I sound like a real jerk when I say this, right? You know, there are many areas right now where regulation is very low. And yet, if you just imagine a dialogue, there's almost no doubt where it would come out. If we had a big dialogue about pornography, right? the arguments in favor of pornography do not sound good. It's like, well, a lot of people really enjoy it. And it's the best job option for the workers. I wouldn't want my kid doing it, but there's a lot of jobs I wouldn't want my kid doing. All right. That's the case for pornography. The case against just give every horror story, every awful thing that you can think about every, you know, just like, and we're like, just imagine like these, there's this horrible kind of porn. There's that horrible kind of porn. What kind of a world do we live in? And like, like who's going to win the debate? Obviously, the person who goes and lists 100 horrifying forms of pornography is going to crush it in the eyes of the audience. And yet, the arguments in favor are pretty good, actually. And the other stuff is mostly just inflammatory. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, this doesn't sound too good, yeah. But still, like, a bunch of people enjoy it. The people who are delivering it don't seem to mind. Like, how is this my business? It doesn't sound like a good argument, but it's a good argument. <laughs> Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were in the headlines this week for uh, speaking to Amazon workers who are trying to unionize. I hate to say workers as though entrepreneurs and investors don't work. It's such a lie. Uh, so Bernie and AOC are talking to these people. And uh, Bernie's big point, you are up against a guy worth $170 billion. One guy has all this money uh, piled up. So when it comes to, I want to take his uh, approach first. When it comes to one guy having $170 billion and these other people earning $15 an hour, 
what is wrong with, oh gosh, we have to sacrifice one guy and redistribute his wealth, boo-hoo. We could help so many other people. What's wrong with that way of thinking? Wow. I mean, just to start, the fact that the customer is really rich does not mean that his labor demand elasticity is low. Just to go back to that previous technical concept, but to put it in simpler terms, just because you're rich and could easily afford something doesn't mean that you are going to ignore the price. There are plenty of rich, cheap people in the world. And if you take the price of something and you raise it a lot, even a rich, cheap person, a cheap person who is rich will say, well, I can live without it. I don't need it. Think about my dad. My dad is loaded, but he literally wears rags. He really does. He wears T-shirts that are ripped, like a 18-inch rip, and he just walks around like that. He doesn't care. Right. Could he afford to get new T-shirts? Of course, my dad could afford 10,000 new T-shirts. Doesn't mean that he's going to ignore the price when he decides whether he wants to go and get new T-shirts. The same goes for any business. The fact that they totally could afford it doesn't mean that they will be insensitive to the price. And that question about sensitivity to the price is really the pragmatic one for whether you want to go and push for more. Second point is that even though a person can be worth billions and yes, you could say, Hey, at this point it would be really easy to go and just expropriate them, hand out their stuff to a bunch of people who need it more. And that would be great. And the problem is that this had leads to very bad incentives over the longer run in such a world who would ever want to amass that kind of money in the first place, right? In a world where no one can become a billionaire, no one wants to work hard enough to become a billionaire, right? Or of course, also in the real world, people try to figure out ways to own billions without officially owning billions, and there's plenty of ways of doing that. Right? You'll say, well, look, uh, you know, well, I mean, you just think about the Catholic Church. Right? My, my, favorite, uh, my, <laughs> my favorite caricature of a, you know, someone living very well in the Vatican is, oh, I don't own a thing. The church owns it all. Right? So similarly, you can just have the wealth be owned by the business and not be officially owned by the owner. And then he can live super well without, in fact, legally being in possession of it. So that's another very easy way that people can get around it. But again, like it comes down to imagine a world where no one can go and become a billionaire. What does this do to the efforts of people to go and come up with new ideas and do new things and improve things? Again, the idea that no one needs more than a billion. It's like, well, yeah, well, like, sure. No one needs more than a billion. No one really needs hundred thousand. You can survive on way less than that. Doesn't mean the money is not motivating, not only to the individuals concerned, but all the people who are in what we can call a tournament, the tournament to become really successful. This is, and I don't think that I talked about it in Labor Econ versus the world, but there's something in Labor Econ called tournament theory that says that one reason for having high salaries for top people isn't just to motivate the top people, it's to motivate all the people who think they have a shot at becoming that top person. In the same way that the prize in an athletic contest, it motivates more than the winner. It motivates all the losers too, because you don't know who's going to be the winner for sure until the end. Do you see that there is a complete lack of, I'm um, not sure if appreciation is the right word, but recognition as to what the innovator, entrepreneur, investor actually does? Because it's as though, they say this as though one day, you know, th things were falling from the sky. Bezos got $170 billion. I could have gotten it just as easily, but he sort of got this as a result of happenstance. If you had to explain to people uh, the value of, say, the entrepreneur 
or the value of the planning that goes on behind the scenes, managing. Uh, what would you say to that person? I would start by looking at other cases that have nothing to do with business because people have so much resentment about business. It's hard to start there. I would say, so what do you think about the people that made the Moderna COVID vaccine? Do you think they did something really good? <laughs> Was what they did impressive? Could anybody have done that or only some people? Right. Do you think there were a lot of other smart people who were trying really hard who just didn't make it? I think I can pretty easily get yeses to all these kinds of questions and then say, all right, well, so like, why is it so hard for people to actually come with a vaccine? Well, you need a lot of knowledge. You need insight. You need diligence, training. You need some luck, too, of course. Put that all together. You know, it, it's a very hard formula for figuring that thing out. I say, great. You know, why? Because it's an intellectually extremely difficult task. So, okay, uh, how about making McDonald's? Is that something any dummy could do? Right? And I'm like, hmm. Well, it's just burgers, isn't it? It's not just burgers. Right? <laughs> There's a lot more in McDonald's than just burgers. A lot more than just going and setting up one restaurant. If you go and watch a movie like The Founder about the creation of McDonald's, you realize, wow, there's actually an enormous amount of intellectual effort that goes into making one successful restaurant. Now, the official theme of that movie, by the way, was that the guys who really came up with the ideas got ripped off by a, by a, by a mere salesman who showed up, realized they had a good idea, and then ripped them off. But if you watch the movie with a more reasonable mindset, you realize, look, they're, the guys who did the first McDonald's, they had a lot of great ideas, but they were terrible in marketing, terrible in scaling. And Ray Kroc was great at those other things. He took some other ideas that people had, which were not his own, and he combined them with a bunch of other critical ideas. And even he actually was not making money for years. He needed to spend a lot of time tweaking that formula until finally he hit pay dirt. For every person like that, there's a lot of other people that are really smart and try really hard and never succeed. This is something where you just have to go and try a lot of ideas out. A lot of people have to be trying in tandem to get the success that we're used to. There were a whole lot of vaccine ideas that got tried. A bunch of them succeeded. I, there's a, you don't hear about the losers, but no doubt there were many losers that just failed. And you might say, well, weren't the losers, weren't they just as smart? I don't know. Probably they weren't quite as smart. Maybe they got lucky. Maybe they had some other advantages, but the important point is that running a successful business is actually extremely intellectually demanding. It's not something that anybody could do. Furthermore, it's not in one way, one important way, it's much harder than science, which is that once you figure out a scientific result, it stays true forever. Once you figure out a great business model, it does not stay great forever. Very quickly, mm -hmm. other people may be borrowing your idea, improving your idea. You might only have months or maybe a few years, if you're lucky, of using your idea before the whole world has copied you and then improved and you're left in their dust. Yeah, let's see. You Are you old enough to remember Blockbuster Video? Yeah, <laughs> I right. go every week. Blockbuster Video. I still remember the whole country. So it was Blockbuster sprouting out with these giant optimistic signs. Here we grow again. And then they vanish into nothingness. Right. At one point, Blockbuster was an incredible innovation, and then it turned into a dinosaur in not even a generation. In like 10 years, it went from being the main people place where people were getting, were able to choose movies to the dustbin of history. 
an intellectually very demanding task and one where someone who's smart enough to start it still apparently was not smart enough to transform it to adapt to changing additions. That's what business really is like. Whenever I have done anything businessy, my admiration for people actually running successful businesses goes up another time, another notch because it's like, you officially I'm smart. I've got fancy credentials. I got a lot of connections and yet even going and selling a book on my own, is actually very hard, very discouraging. Just imagine how hard it is to do something really well. Yeah, it's like those guys, they got something, something that I have at least not demonstrated. Maybe if I devoted my whole life to running businesses, I could do it. But then again, maybe not. Maybe I could give it my very best shot and totally fail. I'm grateful that other people do that so I don't have to. I think that's so important because if you look at right after Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto says, look at all these great things capitalism has done for us mm -hmm. just in the yeah. last 100 years. Um, gosh, think of how much better it's going to be once the workers are calling the shots <laughs> as it, like the greatest example of static thinking you've ever uh, you've ever come across. It's like if we drastically change the primary decision makers, things will uh, continue in on their current trajectory. Mm -hmm. That was just so shocking to read. I had to read it. Like I, I checked two different yeah. copies to make sure that line was translated correctly. Yeah, that is a bizarre part of the book. I mean, it's essentially reverse empirical reasoning of saying, you know, what's going to be the best system ever? The system that didn't create all this incredible progress. You know, what system is going to be terrible. It's going to be seen to be terrible real soon. The system that did deliver like, wait a second, Carl, you know, the best predictor of future success is past success. The best way forward is to stick with the system that has worked so far, not to go and dismantle it in fire and blood and then trust in the promises of people who, as far as we know, Karl Marx never even visited a factory in his whole life. <laughs> Engels did, of course. He was a factory owner. <laughs> When we talk about uh, how should this economic issue be approached, a lot of people will say, well, we have to look at the studies and look at the research. Now, uh, I really appreciate people who take the time to do this. My question is, do studies give tyrants too much leeway? For example, mm -hmm. you might look at something and say, okay, it's good. So what we need is for the government to fund more of this good stuff. It's really bad. Well, government needs to step in and, and improve this. Under almost any scenario, if mm -hmm. you see this big magic money printing machine as having no negative downside, is is empiricism a way to sort of just open the door to tyrants who control the media, who will spin any study any way they want? Ultimately, I don't think so. Here's the thing. You have to ask, well, what would the media be doing if there was no empirical work? <laughs> would they shut up? <laughs> no, they would not shut up. What would politicians do if there was no academic research on any of the topics they wanted to talk about? Would they shut up? No, they would not shut up. They would just make stuff up or engage in poetry. I think the, the real story of almost all empirical academic research is that it's irrelevant to the real world. It's basically a way for professors to go and get their dream jobs for life. It's a way to establish an academic pecking order. It is true that doing this kind of research is one of the better ways of getting a high-ranking position, especially in a democratic administration. But once you're in that administration, nobody cares about your studies. All that they care about is that you're on the right team and you need to seem smart and say what people higher up want to hear. And that's really what's required. So yeah, I think that 
the actual relevance of empirical work for making for for creating tyranny is pretty darn low. You know, you know, if you just think about something like COVID, like you know, did empirical research on COVID actually cause the enormous overreaction to COVID? I don't think you can fairly say that. Do you know why? Because the overreaction happened before <laughs> there was any evidence in really. Like there was like we you know, the, the world economy was shut down before there was barely time to do any actual empirics. And then what happened? Well, the empirics that were done were of the among the lowest quality you can do, just the observational study, right? Or often worse. Often it's like, here's a paper showing that this policy works. Why? We have a model. Point of a model is to empirically test it. It's not just have a model and then say this model justifies something. You can always come up with a model of anything. So that's pretty ridiculous. What was not done during COVID, as far as I know, in any country. So the UK has finally done a little bit, but during the serious period, nothing was done. This is a voluntary human experimentation. Let's go and actually, you know, so, you know, go, you know, so or, you know, your voluntary paid human, human experimentation in, in particular, paying people to go and do things that are dangerous. Of course, uh, vaccines were voluntarily tested on people, but only in a highly inefficient way where you then give them vaccine and then you wait three months and see whether they got COVID. There's a much better way of doing it, which is you give them vaccine and then you deliberately expose people to COVID and see whether the vaccinated people were deliberately exposed whether the vaccinated people were deliberately exposed or less likely to develop it or not. And then you got an immediate measure. This way you could know about vaccine efficacy in a month instead of three to six months. Right? So this is a case where I think empirical work would have actually been a big improvement over what was done, like good empirical work. And the same thing, like, I think it would have been great if we'd done real empirical work on masks, ones where we actually randomly selected some people with masks, some without, and then put them in a room with a lot of COVID and saw what happened. That would have been a way be a big improvement. And again, honestly, I think that the most likely outcome would have been the masks don't work very well. And then perhaps the experiment wasn't done because people feared the truth. Like, yeah, well, but we need to do something. And then if it turns out the masks aren't really very good. Um, in the end, probably if the mask had come out saying that mask wearing reduces infection by 1%, people would have said, just said, well, if it saves one life, that's good enough. And even then it wouldn't have mattered. But I think it probably would have been helpful for quelling the true hyperbole of, oh, you like you want you, you, you want to have mass death in schools and that kind of nonsense. So, yeah. So overall, empirical work greatly overrated by people that do it because they just think that it's much more influential in the real world than it really is. Although, I mean, if you really talk to them, there's 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 like, even with empirical researchers, there's a disconnect where, where they say, well, we, why do we need to do this? Oh, because it's so important to answer these questions. Yeah. But who actually in politics listens? Yeah, well, I guess kind of no one. Whoops. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, that's what the, what the active researchers think. But anyway, it's, you know, it's, it, so it's overrated by them. But I think it, it, but to go and blame it for what's wrong with the world, I think that's mostly pretty silly. Bad stuff's going to happen regardless because people just want to do bad stuff. Yeah, and uh, even uh, the CNN doctor, Lena Wen, has come out and said that masks are little more than facial decorations at this point. You you basically have to get the vaccine if you want anything. So two years of lies. Yep, no apology. Just just run over the body and just keep driving. Yeah, Nothing I mean, there, are, there, are, there are some RCTs. I think, with they, I think at least lean a little bit in the direction of does a little bit. But... Hmm. All right. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, like, like, I don't know, like if it reduces it five or 10%, that would still be my guess. Ultimately, I, you know, I've read the summaries of the studies. I haven't read the studies themselves, but you know, I'll say that puts me in the top 1.1% <laughs> <laughs> in terms of uh, how much attention people have paid to actual evidence. 
but it's yeah, like five to ten percent is just not worth it for the uh, for for a risk of this kind. It's crazy. The book is Labor Econ versus the World Essays on the World's Greatest Market. Few more questions for you, Doctor Kaplan. Yeah. Thank you for your patience with me. Um, in the year eighteen hundred versus the year of twenty twenty two, adjusted for inflation, wages have risen. In that time, we've seen a lot of unions, we've seen a lot of labor laws, we've seen the government involve itself in education. Therefore, this, we know, is the method of getting low wages to become higher. Investments in the population and uh, unions coming together to collectively bargain for higher wages. True or false? False. What's true is that some of these things might have some small effects some of the time. That's very different from giving these regulations, government policies, credit for anything close to the whole thing. Here's the knockdown bulletproof argument. Look, if we just went and divided all of the income in the world in 1800 by all the people, it would have been a pittance compared to what we have today. So clearly the main thing that has mattered is increasing productivity per worker. It can't be anything redistributive. It can't be anything where we're taking money from business to worker or rich to poor. The math for that just totally does not add up. We have greatly increased production per person. So anytime there's a law that is redistributive, you just can't give that more than a most. You can't give it any more than, than a tiny share of the credit. Almost all the credit just goes to increased production. In terms of whether these laws have had any positive effect at all for workers, this is where you really need to go and consider them one by one and look at First of all, the basic theory and common sense, but also the numbers. For something like unions, here's the main thing that we can say. Uh, unionization peaked around, uh, let's see, I want to say around 1950, and then it's been falling ever since. Yeah, well, there were a whole lot of fantastic years for, for wage growth long before unions were anything noticeable. And there were a whole bunch of great years for wage growth as unions were on the decline. And... That's just what we see. All right. So the idea that unions are somehow crucial, like if they were crucial, wages should have been going down since 1950. They went up. Right. So that's pretty crazy. Right. Uh, for things like education, that's one where I do have a whole book on this. And I say that just to understand what's going on, step one is you have to look at what schools really teach. And when you realize that what most schools spend their day on has nothing to do with real life, the idea that education has been an important part of increasing the size of the pie or raising productivity per worker is just crazy. Look, most of the day is not spent on literacy or numeracy. It's spent on, you know, you know <laughs> spent on arts and crafts and music and history and you know, poetry, just a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with almost any kind of actual production. So the idea that that was important is pretty crazy. I'll, in my book, I go over a lot more of the details of what was going on. What you really can see is that when people who desperately want to find that education is crucial for economic development look at the numbers, they struggle to find the effect. They struggle to find it. You know, Haiti, desperately poor, and yet Haiti is now as educated as France was in like 1960. Right, Just going and putting, having kids sit in chairs and be talked at is not the path to economic progress. Right? You know, what is the path? And really learning by doing is what's critical. And so again, get those multinationals in to go and get them to bring you up to the frontier of the modern world of business. That's what you really want. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I love how you make that point 
in just one quick sentence at the beginning of the book. It's increased production and competition. Like mm-hmm. I, I just love the I don't I calling them dogmatic is you know belittling, but it's just these one sentence answers that hey we've been given one one sentence answers from their side for so long. It's about mm-hmm. time we get uh, some some pushback yeah. here. My I mean, favorite, you know, like here is, is one thing that's really crazy. You know, look, the idea of the minimum wage is important for rising wages. Look, only a very tiny share of the workforce earns minimum wage. Do you think that lawyers are making more money because there's a minimum wage for the janitors in the same building? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. the vast majority of workers are getting paid way above the minimum, so the minimum couldn't possibly matter for them. Right? It's more complicated saying, does the minimum wage has, has it helped anyone? But the but to give it credit for much of what actually happened is just off the wall. One of my favorite uh, sentences uh, in this book, page 149, suppose you could have a Princeton education without the diploma or a Princeton diploma without the education. Which would you choose? What are the implications of that question? Hmm. Yeah, and I, and I don't remember where they said it there, but one of the things I often add on is so if, you, if you even have to think about this question, do you agree with me? Because my point is not that the answer is clear, but that it is unclear, which mm-hmm. means that the effect of having the pure effect of having the diploma without the education, people already think that it's big. Uh, the point in the background is this: a lot of the reason why education pays is not that you learn useful job skills in school; it's that you get a stamp on your forehead or what economists call a signal. This doesn't matter very much from the point of view of the individual worker. It's like, well, if I want to get a good job, who cares whether I learn skills in school or whether I just get the stamp on my forehead, which allows me to get the job. But from the view of society, it matters immensely. A society can prosper if the workforce becomes more skilled. Society cannot prosper because the workforce becomes more stamped. If everybody has more stamps, the result is just credential inflation where you need more stamps even to not get your application thrown in the trash for a better job. I like that point about credential inflation because it explains the downside of something like Subsidy. So uh, mm-hmm. you, you have two quotes here. Uh, insofar as the signaling model is right, however, government support for college impoverishes society by sparking a credentialist arms race. Mm-hmm. You then continue on the next page. If one laborer gets more irrelevant education, he outshines the competition. But if the whole labor force gets more irrelevant education, society's time and money goes down the drain. What can credential inflation teach us about uh, subsidies? Yeah, well, uh, subsidies are a great way to get more credential inflation. You know, just to get an idea about how bad this is, in 1945, the average American over 25 had about 40 less years of education. How many? Four, four less years. Okay. Right. So basically, right, you know, a high school degree back then was like was about what a college degree is now. It set you apart. Not enormously apart, but it put you in about the top quarter of the population, right, in terms of education, which meant that many managers, many people with high status jobs just had high school degrees in those days. That was all that you needed. Uh, when people have looked at individual occupations, what they found, and you know, a lot of this work actually comes from quite left-wing sociologists who are just empirical. So once again, you know, don't, do not be quick to dismiss the empirical work for understanding the world. It's not going to change policy, unfortunately, but in terms of improving understanding, useful. Anyway, what they found is the large majority of this rise in education has not been, been reflected in people doing higher tech jobs or you know, space age type jobs or, infra- or information age type jobs. There's a little of that. 
The main thing that's happened, though, is that jobs that have existed since 1945 and again, probably since the year 45 B.C. are just done by more highly educated workers. It's now very common for waiters in nice restaurants to have college degrees, for Uber drivers to have college degrees, for cashiers to have college degrees. This would have been almost unheard of in 1945. But when there's a lot more people who have the degrees, who have the stamps on the forehead, this raises the competition, means that employers can afford to be pickier and say, why should I go and interview someone to work at my fancy restaurant who hasn't even got a college degree? So if we look at the downsides of subsidies, if I run a class and uh, instead of having you know people either buy their way in or get in at any uh, uh means through a uh, voluntary method. If the state then subsidizes free college, like, like the military's free, government pays for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. Now I have a ton of students who otherwise wouldn't have been there. Good thing you might be giving people opportunities, but the downside I'm thinking, are these people going to be as passionate? I'm getting a lot of people, so I might have to decrease uh, the criteria for what an A would give someone. So I have to lower the credentials. So now everyone is getting a worse off education so I could find a bigger common denominator. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many professors are going to say, well, the, the I'm not changing the standards. Everyone in the class has <laughs> failed. Are there professors that'll do that just to prove a point? Maybe in math or physics. There's a few people <laughs> like that. Well, that's yeah. sort of the last bastion of absolute standards. Even there, I don't mm-hmm. really believe it except for an occasional true eccentric. I mean, I do think that the definitely the typical professor is, uh, is much, is much better off because of this regime, because it means they have a job. And, and if it weren't without the subsidies, they just wouldn't, those positions wouldn't exist. And then they'd have to have a real job. Mm. Um, you know, I don't want a real job. <laughs> you, know, you know, like how many real jobs are there? I could just go and take an hour out of my afternoon to go and talk to you about this book, right? How many jobs are there where I could get paid to write this book? Very few, uh, but because of all the subsidies, the system is swimming in money, and then these opportunities exist. It's important to remember there's a big distinction between what's good for Brian Kappa and what's good for the world. I don't think that public subsidization of higher education is good policy. It's terrible policy, but I'm honest enough to say it's made my life a lot better. And maybe I would have been one of the lucky few who would be at Harvard or something, but you know, probably not. And then I would be stuck. I'd have to do this as an evocation rather than as my calling. And is there anything to the concept of uh, changing who the producer is accountable to? So if I go to the restaurant, hey, this food is disgusting. Hey, the waiter was rude. I'm very likely to get a positive response from Mm -hmm. any restaurant that I've been to with, I mean, microscopic exceptions because I, the customer, have the leverage. But if their money instead came from the state, Mm-hmm. then I wouldn't have leverage. They'd say, well, uh, in four years, vote for a different guy who's <laughs> going to appoint someone restaurant commissioner mm-hmm. so they could then improve. It's So it's almost like what makes this so bad, subsidizing things decreases the quality, mm-hmm. is you're increasing the amount of distance between the producer and the consumer. Is there anything here or am I just picking on things that I already don't like? Yeah, there's definitely something there, but it's more, but it's actually more complicated than all that. Here's the thing. If it's the government directly just hands money to the producers, then your story is great. If the government hands money to the consumer and then the consumer can spend it the way that they want, 
then it's less clear why these producers would be so unresponsive because they still need to get the customer to spend their money there in order to get it. Right? So for example, uh, you know, like with food stamps, the way the food stamps work is you give them to a customer who then takes them to the store. The government is the ultimate person that pays for it or the ultimate or you know, the, the ultimate payer. And yet mm-hmm. if the customer is unhappy with the way the grocery store treats them, they can still complain or take the, take the food stamp someplace else. But then you go and take a look at college and you say, Hey, like, even private schools actually seem to be highly unresponsive to what customers want. Let's just uh, say that my kids' college, uh, they recently denied my request to be able to stay in my son's room overnight. They previously granted it, but this time they said no. And why? Just, well, we just decided not to grant any, grant any of these anymore for the rest of the year. Why? Like, why are you treating us so shabbily? Like, what's the problem? Like, my dad wants to stay with us. Like we, we're, we're two we're brothers. We're roommates. We want him here. And yet you're just saying no. And if we pay to be here, we pay for the storm. Why are you, why do you act in this horrible way? Right. And with, and what I can say honestly is that with higher education, most of the CEOs, at least a lot of the subsidy they get, for example, from student loans, they do come from a student who could take the student loans and go someplace else. Mm-hmm. And yet they still are stubbornly, pig-headedly, horribly unresponsive to what students actually want. And what's going on? See, part of it is that they have, a lot of these schools have giant endowments such that they could just, they could lose a ton of, a ton of customers and everything would be fine for because they could, they could basically stop charging tuition and still never go out of business, just live off the interest. The richest schools are that rich, right? So partly they've just been given too many donations that allow them to be oblivious or, or just very rude and insulting to the people that are officially their customers. Uh, so there's that. I think another part of what's going on, honestly, is that the main customers are children and children are very confused about what's going on in the world uh, and are not good advocates for their own views. So they're t- they tend to actually just accept whatever they're given. This is the way that children are. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can really understand the pathologies of higher education without realizing that the main customers are children. <laughs> and similarly, I don't think you can understand the pathologies of K-12 without realizing the main customers are not the students, they're, they're the parents. And the parents, on the one end, if you're running a private school, like, you need to be very concerned about some kinds of things, especially stuff that upsets moms. But on the other hand, there's a lot of other stuff where you can do whatever you want because moms don't care and the kids are not the ones that pay the tuition. The book is Labor Econ versus the World, Essays on the World's Greatest Market. Link will be in the description below. Dr. Kaplan, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Keith. This was very, very, this was great fun. Uh, you, you, You thank me for my patience, but no patience is required because this is a thrill. Thanks a lot, Keith.